Welcome to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast, where we go inside what makes a coach a coach. The Guardians of the Game podcast is a production of the National Association of Basketball Coaches and Learfield IMG College, brought to you by Wilson. Proud to be the official basketball of NCAA March Madness. Shop the official NCAA game ball on Wilson.com. Now, here's your host, Tim Doyle. Welcome back to another episode of the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. I'm your host, Tim Doyle, and today we're joined on the podcast by Iowa head coach Fran McCaffrey, and there's no beers here. I don't know if you're a beer guy, but two Irish guys sitting here having a conversation. I don't know. I feel like it would be better if we were drinking. Um, But we're here with the Iowa head coach, obviously having an outstanding year this year, but we want to talk about your journey. You know, you are a head coach, crazy to think, Lehigh at 26 years old, do you look back like that was another life? That's an interesting way to put it, Tim. You know, it, it seems like it was so long ago. But uh, as you pointed out, you know, in the journey, uh, an intricate part of, of my growth had fabulous years, coached some really good players, with, was surrounded by some terrific people. And, and let's be honest, I mean, you're learning your craft. Uh, anytime you get a job at age 26, it's kind of a unique set of circumstances. I went up there as a young coach to, you know, be an assistant and help Tommy Schneider build the Lehigh program. Uh, We had success quickly and he moved back to Penn where we came from as the head coach. And I was promoted incredibly thankful for the opportunity. Uh, And really kind of learned on the job. You know, it's one of those things, as you all know, you've been around a game a long time. You quickly go from making suggestions to making decisions, everything that we do, you know, and, and in those days, you didn't have a big staff. You didn't have a director of operations. You didn't have a, a video coordinator. It was just a different time. So we kind of did everything. Uh, you got your hands dirty and you learned and at the end of the day, it's all about relationships, relationships with your players in recruiting, at practice, in games, before games, after games, after tough losses, and, and really help mold who I am today, those years at Lehigh. You know, it's interesting you talk about relationships, and I mentioned before we came on the air about how Bob McKillop was my next-door neighbor. He was my brother Dan's high school coach at Long Island Lutheran High School. And just watching the evolution of him, yeah, he was a high school coach that was like Gene Hackman and Hoosiers, five passes, like ball fakes. And then he ends up coaching a guy who's taking 30 footers at Davidson. Like he evolved as a coach. What have been your evolutions, maybe recruiting, maybe on the sidelines for yourself? I think fortunately for me, Tim, I, I have always been an up-tempo guy. Starting from when I signed at Wake Forest, in the seventies to go play there, they were up-tempo. I transferred to Penn. We we were really up-tempo. And then every job that I've ever had, every coach that I ever worked for. And then, you know, when you go back and as we talked about now, now we're looking back, uh, you know, I worked for Craig Littlepage, Tommy Schneider, Digger Phelps, John McLeod, all those guys really wanted to push it and push tempo. 
which I think became even more important because when I first started coaching, we didn't have the, the three point line. Wow. Uh, you know, and then right. It was, I think the three point line came in 86. My first head coaching job was 85, 86, but in coaching in the beginning. So, you know, you, you move the ball, you, you work the ball, you took your time, you know, you weren't going to take long jumpers. Now we run plays to take long jumpers because it counts for three. <laughs> points, right. So, you know, you sort of have to evolve as the game evolves. The game, the game became way more athletic. Everybody can run and jump. Uh, it became positionless. It used to be one, two, three, four, five, right? And and now it's positionless. Anybody can bring it. Anybody can shoot it. Anybody can drive it. Anybody can post up. Uh, so I, you know, I became over the years a little more of a motion, a transition motion guy. Uh, I was always a transition guy maybe a little more transition set plays to transition motion and then some set plays that, that, that kind of thing. But I've also always been a changing defensive guy. And that goes back to my days playing for Bob Weinhauer. We really changed defenses and, and uh, had success with it. And so anytime I've been a head coach, we've always changed defenses. You know, do you talk about all your different influences that you had, whether it was coaching or the philosophy you know, when I was in high school and I went to Long Island Lutheran for a year or so, and my teacher was a math teacher. He used to show us highlights of Green Bay Packers because he was from Green Bay. And growing up in New York City, that's how narrow-minded I was. I used to think to myself, who lives in Green Bay, Wisconsin? Like, I didn't know there was like towns and bars and that's just how East Coast people are, right? At least that's how I was. Uh, I am first generation, so I wasn't, wasn't what you like to say, well-rounded. Um, did you ever think you were going to be living in Iowa for 10 plus years at some point during your life? Like you have. No, I, I didn't. And, and it's interesting you bring that up because we came out here in 85, my first year as a head coach and played in the Amanda Hawkeye classic. And we played in Carver Hawkeye arena, which opened in 83. So it was an incredibly beautiful facility, brand new, unbelievable fan base. Yeah. And I was so impressed with the crowd and the people and the town. But even then, I, I never thought I would be back here living, raising my children here. I always thought it would be on the East Coast, grew up in Philadelphia. But you figure it out quickly, Tim. Once you get into coaching, if you're going to pursue this profession, you got to be willing to move. Uh, and, and you have to have a wife that is willing to move with you. And then you have to make decisions because what might make the most sense for you professionally might not be what's best for your children. What are you picking them up and moving and what ages are they? Uh, for any number of reasons, you know, you have family considerations. Uh, I was pretty fortunate early in my career. I made a bunch of moves before I got married. Uh, and I've made two moves uh, since I've been married the last of which was a big move uh, that caused some, uh, some of my kids to be upset. You know, they were young. It's all they knew was living in Albany, New York. They loved Siena they, and we love Siena. We love the people there, you know, our friends, our schools, our teams. And, 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 you know, I looked at the opportunity to coach in the big 10 and it's like, professionally, it's a no brainer. 
but we have to talk about it, you know, with my wife. Uh, she's from St. Paul, Minnesota, so it's, you know, only four hours from, from Iowa City. She was comfortable moving back to the Midwest, but we, you know, I, I've lived in Philadelphia, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, South Bend, Indiana, Greensboro, North Carolina, Albany, New York, and Iowa City, Iowa. And that's fairly typical, I guess you'd say, of, of, of a coach. You mentioned, you know, Coach McKillop. He's been at Davidson a long time. Not yeah. many people get to do what he what he's done. You know, I, I, it, it strikes a chord for me because I got into broadcasting as a young guy right out of college. And I didn't have the foresight to think about the broadcasting career, the ups and downs, the path that it was going to be when I started the family. Now I have two young kids, six and three. And I kind of look back and I was like, man, I wish I would have had this conversation with the coach, with the broadcaster about maybe, you know, dipping my toe in other waters. And, you know, there's a lot of downtime, right? What do you do outside of the season? There's a lot of things that I didn't think about as a young broadcaster that I think you're speaking right now to young coaches. But did you, in your 20s, kind of figure out, all right, I have to meet a nice girl, your wife, Margaret, who's going to understand this lifestyle and what comes with it? Or were you guys just flying by the seat of your pants? Fortunately for me, Tim, Margaret was a high-level athlete. Yep. Okay. She was an All-American at Notre Dame. And we actually met when uh, she she was uh, on Muffin McGraw's staff for one year. She was the restricted earnings coach, if you remember those days, for one year. What was she making there? Uh, what was it? 12500 I think, was the salary. <laughs> yeah. And uh, – but she was uh, – Muffet asked her to take it for one year because she was going to go to law school, which she eventually did. So she went to Notre Dame Law School while I was coaching there. Wait, wait, wait. So your wife is the best athlete in your house and the smartest? Man, that's a – By far in both areas. <laughs> she also has some opinions about the game. <laughs> but when you, when you talk about the moves and the support that you get – it doesn't work for everybody. It just doesn't, you know, some, some people just, they, they want to stay in the area where all their families located and where they grew up and what they're familiar with. You know, I, I was a head coach at, at Lehigh. We had just gone to the NCAA tournament. I had job security. I had a great team coming back, but an opportunity to go to Notre Dame and be an assistant. And you know what that means. That's a grind. You know, we're going to recruit nationally and, and we're going to play Duke, North Carolina, Boston College, Providence, Missouri, DePaul, Marquette, UCLA, USC. Yep. Uh, and you're going to be on the road. I mean, I was on the road constantly. But that's what I needed to do. I needed to learn my craft in those days. And figure out, put a scouting report. How are we going to beat Indiana coached by Bobby Knight? How are we going to beat North Carolina coached by Dean Smith? How are we going to beat Duke coached by Mike Krzyzewski? So that's how you grow. And that's how you learn. You got to be willing to move, you know? So I, I pick up and move. I give up a head coaching job to be an assistant. And then ultimately that's where I met Margaret. We got married. Then we moved to Greensboro, North Carolina to coach in the Southern conference. That's why I coached against Coach McKillop. And, and so now I'm back. I moved over one chair. And now you're back to making the decisions and, 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 and building a program. Because normally, when you take over a program, there, there's a reason why there's a new coach. Right. You've got work to do. 
and then uh, had some success there. Went to Siena, same situation. Came here, same situation. And now you're coaching a talent like Luca Garza, you know, National Player of the Year candidate, maybe back-to-back -back National Player of the Year, depending on what publication you read or what social media website you check out or some idiot like Tim Doyle's calling the best college basketball player in the country. How do you help him navigate all the accolades and hype to keep it from becoming a distraction as a head coach? You know what, Tim? I, I, I would, <clears throat> excuse me. I wish I could tell you there was something that I've done that's ingenious. <laughs> uh, it's not. This kid is the most humble athlete I think I've ever coached. You you got to take more credit. No, no, you, you can't do this. This is like this is. I'm putting you on the, the pedestal here. You got to say <laughs> this is all because of me. This is why he's doing well. But you say it's you because know, of him. This is what I do. I get him the ball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smart enough to get him the ball. But, uh, you know, we, we do talk. Uh, we have a tremendous relationship. But basically what I've done is ask him to lead. I need you to lead. Uh, you know, I need it to be your locker room. You know, when you're, when you're best players, your hardest worker, that guy's your leader. Now, he gets help. You know, he's got... My son, Connor, they came in together. They're really good friends. Connor's a starter. Jordan Bohannon, uh, Joe Wieskamp, you know, he's, he's got help in that area. But, but he's the guy, when he speaks in that locker room, you know, guys are going to listen because he has credibility. But he also has an unbelievable way about him. So if he's talking to you, you want to do what he asks you to do. And because anything that I ask him to do, he does without hesitation. And the other players see that as well. There's, there's no different set of rules for the guy who's a national player of the year. He can come when he wants. He can show up when he wants. Uh -uh. No, he's, he's the first one there. He's the last one to leave. He's the one that says all the right things in the locker room after a big win, after a tough loss. And, and he's calling guys up saying, hey, let's go work out. Let's go, go to the practice gym and get it in. Uh, and, and as you well know, Tim, I mean, that – makes my job that much easier. Yeah, you know, now, now I think you're overpaid <laughs> with that answer. When you have a guy like that, you know, those are the yeah. those are the guys, because so many guys are talented, and then you kind of got to deal with the headaches. Yeah. This, is a, this has been a, a, a dream scenario, and I know this is kind of hard for you to digest, and you may not until you're, like, much, much older, but you're coaching your two sons. You, you talked about what Luca rules and setting a tone – um, there's so much now with little kids and I was never coached by my dad. My dad was an NBA player. My dad played for Al McGuire in college at Belmont Abbey, but he was never hands-on. Um, what were you like? Talk, talk us through your journey with your two sons now, Connor and Patrick that play for you. Were you coaching their teams at a youth level? Were you hesitant to coach them in college? Because this is going to be awesome. This is going to be probably be the highlight of your life. You don't realize that right now. But like looking from afar, so many dads are so jealous of you that you get to have kind of these moments with your kids. You know, and I think, Tim, that's a great point. Uh, it is it is the best experience in coaching. Uh, and, and what I did, to go back to your first part of your question, uh, when they were really little, they would come to practice every day. And then then they would come on the road with me and they would sit on the bench, and they would be at shoot-around. They'd be at practice. And then when Connor was in fourth grade, I coached his uh, AAU team. 
I was the head coach at Siena and Patrick was on it. Patrick was in second grade. Uh, and actually Boo Booey from uh, Northwestern, he was on that team. He's from, he's from Albany. Uh, you know, so we had a great little team and I had so much fun coaching those guys and then watched them through AAU. I didn't coach any more beyond that. So when they came here, they played on a different team. I didn't coach it, but I went to the games, went to all their high school games. And then when it became evident that they were, they were good enough, you know, do you want to play for me? Uh, they did. I talked to Tubby. I talked to John Beeline. I talked to Greg McDermott. I talked to Craig Neal. A variety of guys who coached their sons. They all had interesting stories. Yep. Uh, and John Beeline is the one that said, you get to see your son every day. Just don't ever forget that. That's what's most important. He would say something like so poignant like that, right? And yeah. then he would, and then as he said it, he blesses you at the same time. Like, <laughs> but it's funny though, Tim, because at first he's like, he's like, I was resisting it. I didn't think I could do it. I, I didn't think it would be comfortable. I wanted to be sure that, that that Patrick was good enough, and I worried that he wasn't good. If what if he's not good enough? And then when I did it, and of course he ended up being good enough. He was really good. He said, you know, I was thinking, wow, you know, why would I've ever doubted it? it? It was the greatest thing that ever happened. I got to see him every day. It's it's harder for my wife. She has a hard time with it. You know, uh, you know, one game, they play great. Another game, they don't play as much. Somebody else plays, whatever. You know, we had a game where it's happened a couple of times where Patrick was on the floor the other night against Maryland. We go on a 20-0 run. So other guys that would have been in normally, they're not in. And then, you know, last game, you know, Joe Wieskamp gets 20. And uh, some other guys stepped up, you know, Garza and, uh, and Bohannon. So he played 15 minutes. But the bottom line is he's contributed in every game. Connor has you know, led the nation in assist turnover last year. I mean, he's, he's a guy that understands how to win. They're respected in the locker room. They have friends on the team. They have friends on the team that were friends of theirs before they were all on the team together. Right. So it's it, it, it's really been been a special thing for me, for our family. And uh, I'm really proud of, of what they've accomplished and looking forward to the other great things they're going to do. No, it, it's it's pretty awesome. I mean, I'll just tell you personally, like, that's a pretty amazing thing. Now that I have kids and I have older brothers, I'm 38. My brothers are 50 and 47. And we all play Division One basketball. Actually, my middle brother played at Sacred Heart. And they were Division Two at the time, but now he considers his stats Division One, which I think is BS. But that, that's a holiday conversation because I've been grandfathered into Division One numbers. That's a different. That's a different conversation for a different day. But did you ever bring in a recruit and your sons, whether they be kids or teenagers, and they said this guy's not going to be a fit, or Dad, I like this guy. He's going to fit in what what you do or what we do. Yeah, we have we, we have that understanding within our program. Uh, you know, when guys visit, you know, we, we have a certain culture, a certain expectation, and uh, our guys have the freedom to speak up. You know, and it's happened. You know, most of the time, we've sort of gotten to know the prospect, his family. When he comes to visit, we know he's a good kid, a good player. We want him, but occasionally that guy will be different than what we thought. And we want to identify it on the visit so we don't proceed any further. 
because we want to protect the culture that we have. And uh, I would say this, you know, people often ask me, Tim, what's the most important thing that you look for in recruiting? Yep. And I always say character. Uh, nothing is above character. When, you know, well, he's a great shooter. Well, he's, he's a phenomenal athlete, great shot blocker, uh, gets to the rim. You know, I hope he can do all those things. But if you don't have character, you can destroy a locker room all by yourself. Yeah, I, I agree with that because there's 365 days in a year. There's yep. only 30 games, you know? So, like, you have to be around your teammates so much that th there is that, that trust, that bond, those things that happen away from the court. Because, honestly, you're away from the court or not playing in a game <laughs> 10 times as much as playing in a game. The That's game is just such a small sample size. That's what people don't understand and how important that camaraderie is. That's why – I was a little hesitant on jumping on the Nets bandwagon this year because you're bringing in some interesting personalities and, you know, yeah. they get off to a great start. This isn't an NBA show. This is a coaching show for crying out loud. But that was my point with them. You know, you bring in different talent and it's not always going to work because it's going to no. work on paper. Um, you're very passionate about coaches versus cancer. Why is this cause so important to you? Started when I... <clears throat> excuse me, it started when I lost both my parents to cancer. I, I got involved back at UNC Greensboro. Uh, a good friend of mine, Billy Cowball, worked with Jimmy Sadlin, who ran the Coaches versus Cancer program. So they got me involved on a, on a smaller level. Uh, went to a few functions, did some things for them. When I got to Siena, a little higher profile, uh, Again, working through Jimmy Saddle, I played in the golf outings and I uh, started, well, I shouldn't say I started, uh, Anthony Marino and, and some folks in, in Albany, Bob Curley, John Murray, Ken Raymond uh, started an event with, with the Siena coach, myself and, and Will Brown at Albany that has really grown. I think we just celebrated our 15th year of having that event. It's an incredible fundraiser. <clears throat> and then uh, did the same thing here. There's, we have events with all four Division One coaches in the state of Iowa that we do. We do our own, Margaret and I, right here in town. And that began when my son Patrick was diagnosed with cancer at, at age 13. Uh, so we started a fundraiser for what's called the AYA program, which is Adolescent Young Adult Cancer Program. Because for many years, they treated cancer, pediatric cancer, adult cancer. But they found that those, those people in the age of 13 to 31, adolescent, young adults, uh, everything was different. Uh, death rates were higher. Uh, got, the numbers weren't computing the same. So they were attacking it differently. So we're very much involved here. We have the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center right on our campus. We're one of the best hospitals in the world. Really amazing people uh, that we work very closely with. And, you know, obviously been through the journey with my parents being diagnosed and passing and my son Patrick being diagnosed. And, and right now he's, he's doing really well. So, uh, you know, we've had experiences with friends, lost their children, uh, friends of mine who got cancer and are doing fine. And it's just the, the endless pursuit of early detection, education, and then 
treatment to provide more birthdays for deserving people. Yeah, it, it was well documented what you went through with Patrick and right. during the tournament and you know, coaching and back and forth and balancing all that. Personally, my son had open heart surgery August 31st and to push him into surgery and it was 50-50 if he was going to come out. You know, that was as a young parent, yeah, as any parent. That, that I mean, you know, you, you can't even put it into words. No, it's hard to, you know, navigate. He's bounced back. He's doing great. Great. But, but we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And anybody who's working from home, anybody listening to this, watching this knows that no one's doing exceptionally well at home. Like, and they got to throw some little kids in it. You're trying to coach a team. You're telling college age kids, don't do this. Don't do that. Uh, what, what, what's been the biggest challenge for you during this time as a coach and trying to navigate all these waters? Just keeping everybody healthy and making sure they make the, the right decisions. And fortunately for us, our league has done a fabulous job. We went to the daily testing. Uh, our institution got right on top of it. <clears throat> uh, and our guys have made good decisions. So at least, like you said, okay, we get to get up come over, we do our COVID test, we feed them, we have film sessions, we have practice, and we get ready to play the game, we play the games. So we get to do what we love to do. You know, with, with this virtual learning and, and nobody goes out to dinner, nobody goes on vacation, nobody goes anywhere, nobody goes to the movies. I mean, it's just a weird existence that we all have. But for us, you know, basketball is our sanctuary right now. Yeah, I, I, I've said this about Iowa, and I'll tell you, because I don't know if we've ever had this conversation, but I've said it on many different platforms. It's my favorite state in the United States, and here's why, okay? They love sports, and they love drinking beer. And those, to me, two things are very, very <laughs> important priorities in my life. And, I and, I'm, and, and, and a secret piece of me kind of dies a little bit every time I watch your games on TV, because I've played on that court. Right. It was a little bit yep. before you were the head coach. And I know that environment and I know the passion of the fans there. Yep. And I, I, I do feel like they're being, I guess, cheated is the right word. That's the only thing that's coming to mind that they're not able to watch their team play. But the more I'm learning about the rules and what's going to happen, have you started planting a little bit of a seed of, uh, Hey, we could run this back. Like this has been a lot of fun this year. You guys want to do this again next year? You know, I, I think that's a really interesting point, but, but I haven't is the answer to that question. We're just, we're in that grind mode where we're just, okay, we just played Minnesota. Yep. Got one to bed. Now we got Michigan State. Yeah, it's like zombie mode. You just yeah, get into that, like, yeah, who do we like? We're in right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's an idea that I'm giving you. You gave me a great idea. You're an idea. <laughs> yeah, just just say like after a big win, go, wow, it was a lot of fun tonight. We can do this again next year if you guys <laughs> want to do it. <laughs> that's actually how I met I, my wife. I after would our love first, that. That's how I met yeah. my wife after our first date. I went, that was a lot of fun. You want to like do that again tomorrow? And then, <laughs> now we're married. So just some advice Good that we're going to Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, last question for you, and we appreciate your time. Uh, when you were a player, you talked about going to Wake Forest and transferring to Penn. But your nickname was White Magic. All right, I'm just going to alley-oop this up to you, so slam it in however you want. Yeah, well, what, what, what happened was in, in Philadelphia uh, in those days, things were a little more segregated in a lot of ways. Uh, I happened to grow up in, in a racially mixed neighborhood, actually predominantly black. 
so I kind of had a city game. I went to a school in the suburbs. My mentor was 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 a black gentleman, Sam Rines, who took me uh, into the city and said, "We're going to see how good you are." So I played in the city in the Sunny Hill League. So I was the only white kid in the league the first year. Then we had a few more later on. But I played with a guy you may remember. His name was Lewis Lloyd. Played for the Houston Rockets in the 86 Finals. Yep. One of the greatest players I've ever known. He was Black Magic. That was his nickname. And uh, Julius Thompson was a sports writer in Philadelphia. We were, we were, it was the early stages of AAU. And I played with Gene Banks and Lewis Lloyd and Jeffrey Clark and those guys. And so he nicknamed me White Magic because we had Black Magic. So I guess we needed a White Magic. But I played the game differently I wasn't, you know, sort of a white suburban jump shooter. Problem is I couldn't shoot. So that's one of the reasons why <laughs> that was that a actually, problem. That, that, that actually makes two of us. And it's funny when I traveled to games, because I was, I was not a good shooter either. Probably playing outdoors so much. Yeah. Outdoors. No, you know, yeah. Everything to the hole. And yeah, exactly. But, but tell me this, have you ever been stereotyped as a shooter? See, I'll walk into gyms and they'll see me with the comb over and stuff. And a coach will recognize me, but he won't know who I am. And he'll go, I remember when you played, you were the shooter. And I just went, don't do that. Don't, don't just stereotype. It's funny, but people remember the kind of player that I was. You know, I, I've never been stereotyped other than when I, you know, first, but once people got to know me, okay, this guy, he gets to the rim. He's throwing alley-oop passes. He's going behind his back, throwing behind the back passes, going between his legs, uh, shaking and, you know, his herky-jerky guy. Kind of play like the guys play today. I mean, that's how I played. And your team has kind of followed suit. They're a lot of fun to watch. We appreciate your time. It's been fun for me to connect with you. I remember when you got the job. I remember driving out to Iowa. They said, you got to ask Coach McCaffrey three questions. I go, I get paid for this? Three questions? They go, no problem. It's going to be $400 a question, just so I'll let you know that. <laughs> well, Coach, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. and thank uh, you. Good to be with you, Tim. Thank you. We appreciate you tuning in to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. Coach McCaffrey, thanks so much. We'll see you along the line. Thank you. Sounds good, Tim. Take care. <laughs>